This podcast is sponsored by ebookit.com, self-publishing solutions for the independent author and small press. Visit us today at ebookit.com. Welcome to the Toastmasters podcast, the official podcast of Toastmasters International. Hello, everybody. This is Greg Gazin. And I'm Ryan Levesque. Ryan, for some of us, imposter syndrome is an obstacle that gets in the way of being an effective leader. But today we have an expert that will help us loosen the grip this phenomenon has on us. Ryan, who are we speaking with today? Today's guest is Dr. Valerie Young. She's an internationally recognized expert on imposter syndrome and co-founder of Imposter Syndrome Institute. Dr. Young has delivered her Rethinking Imposter Syndrome program to hundreds of major corporations and universities around the world. Her award-winning book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women and Men, Why Capable People Suffer from Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It, is available in six languages. Dr. Young is a featured expert and an article appearing in the August 2023 issue of the Toastmaster magazine written by Maureen Zapala, who's been on this podcast multiple times. The article is called The Secret to Confidently Humble Leadership. Joining us from Western Massachusetts, Dr. Valerie Young, welcome to the Toastmasters podcast. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Valerie, to start our conversation today, can you please define for us imposter syndrome so that we can have a shared context for this conversation? Sure. And thanks for actually starting with that question, because I think there's so much misunderstanding and misinformation about what imposter syndrome or imposter phenomena is. So it's important to be, all be on the same page, as you said. I really see it as there's three key components. One is this belief, consciously or unconsciously, that I'm truly not as capable competent, talented, qualified, intelligent, as other people seem to think that I am. Second, we have this belief despite concrete evidence of our past accomplishments or our clear abilities. And third, and as a result, there is this fear that sooner or later we are going to be found out. So that is essentially the imposter syndrome, which is different than just kind of low self-esteem or different from uh, in my view, just a normal anxiety you might have before getting up on stage to give a, a big talk or going in for a job interview. Mm. Valerie, I'm wondering why, why do you think some people seem to have such a hard time owning their own achievements? I think part of it is that the areas where we struggle, the jobs we didn't get, the promotions we didn't get, the presentations we gave that didn't go well, all of the the more problematic things, the quote unquote failures, setbacks, mistakes, critical feedback, all of that weighs more heavily. You know, it's like we have this trick scale and only the negative evidence counts. And, and partly why it's difficult to take ownership for our accomplishments is that people who experience imposter syndrome externalize their accomplishments. They think, well, you know, sure, they said my presentation was great, but that's just because they like me. And as I always point out, as if likability wasn't a valid skill set, you know, especially in organizations, it's absolutely a valid skill set. Or they'll say, I was just lucky. It, it, was, it was a fluke, uh, right time, right place. Or I had connections. I knew somebody on the, on the inside or you know, it's a family business or whatever it might be. So we find these external connections to our accomplishments. And then we, we decide that it, that's really why I was successful. Or there's this belief that it's only because I have to work harder than everyone else. That this notion that everyone else is naturally talented 
it's easy for them, but because I have to work harder at it, then that kind of proves I must be an imposter. And that seems to be the case, even if they have this piece of paper in front of them or a trophy in front of them that where they actually did accomplish that it was just more than luck. Yeah, absolutely. You know, somebody said to me at a a university, she said, um, you know, this is ridiculous. I I have a doctorate. I have a PhD. Obviously, you know, I'm I'm intelligent. It's ridiculous that I feel like an imposter. I said, no, you feel like an imposter because you have a PhD, Hmm. not in spite of your PhD, because now people look at you a certain way. They have certain, make certain assumptions about you. So for some people, it's like the, the more successful they are, they just feel like they're fooling more people on a higher level. Yeah. Wow. One of the things I do, Valerie, is I work as a public speaking coach. I often hear feedback from students that I work with where they're given feedback from their peers of, oh, you came across so confident, so polished, and they reflect back, yes, but you didn't see the mess inside my head. You didn't see how turbulent it was and how nervous I felt and how I was freaking out. But I'm just curious if you have any reaction to that in the context of imposter syndrome, that people make a value judgment about themselves based on the difficulty that they feel in a given pursuit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at at the core, it comes down to this kind of distorted, inaccurate idea about what it means to be competent. And in the example that, that you just gave, there's this lack of awareness that a certain amount of fear and anxiety and self-doubt is part of the achievement journey. Would that person have said, yeah, but you don't know what's going on, on the inside. I'm freaking out. It's like, well, of course you're freaking out. Like, <laughs> you, you, you give it, Why wouldn't you be freaking out? And the assumption that because you're freaking out means you're not a good speaker. There's this belief behind that, this idea that for everyone else, they're calm and cool and completely confident. When in reality, it's not about always being confident. It's about you know, to kind of keep going despite the fact that you don't always feel confident, that you are nervous as heck, that you are afraid, but you get up there and you took a deep breath and you projected confidence. That's a skill set. Yeah, absolutely. I'd also like to pick up this point that Greg was mentioning about, and you mentioned it as well, people having some concrete evidence of their accomplishment. I know that you encourage people to acknowledge those accomplishments, but I also get the sense from some of your work, it sounds like there's a risk of identifying too deeply with achievements. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, in the sense that very often what I see advice from coaches, for example, um, or people who write articles on imposter syndrome is to make a list of your accomplishments. And I understand the point, right? If I if I write them down, I'll go, oh, that's right. I do have a doctorate. <laughs> that's, that's right. I, I have spoken at 100 universities, right? Or they'll, they'll remember they got the promotion or they've gotten through other obstacles. And I think making a list of your accomplishments is helpful when it comes to performance review time. You'll have mm-hmm. everything documented and written down. The problem is what if that person looks down their list and they see the fact they see that they really did have a connection? They were really were a legacy admission into college. Or, you know, they really do have a great personality. Or guess what? They did happen to be in the right place at the right time. Then they're going to dismiss that accomplishment. Mm. But I also think, as importantly, there's a so much focus on our accomplishments. And you see it all the time, right? I mean, you read my bio in the beginning. And you read, you know, spoken of hundreds of organizations and so on. But nobody, nobody introduces somebody by saying, yeah, but there was that one time she really screwed up, <laughs> right? <laughs> or she really wanted to get this big gig and they chose someone else, or you know, or whatever. You know, we 
you don't hear about the struggles and the difficulties and the challenges. I mean, Google has this program called I Am Remarkable, and anybody can go become an I Am Remarkable presenter. And it's, it's a pretty simplistic, but important, like a two hour program to get especially but not uniquely women to be more comfortable talking about their accomplishments and to say them out loud because they find women, especially internationally, have difficulty promoting themselves in a promotion situation or at performance time. My feedback to Google, who I've worked with many times, is I think you should call it, I am remarkable, but sometimes I suck. (laughs) 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 Because First of all, we're not all remarkable. I, I, I hate to break it to you, but yeah. <laughs> and even if we are all remarkable, we're not all remarkable every single day. And I think the more we can get comfortable with with understanding that a certain amount of fear and self doubt again goes with the achievement territory and is normal and is not an indicator of incompetence, I think the better off we'll be. Ryan, I'm just thinking about our podcast episode that we did. It was Confessions of a Podcast Host, where uh, yeah. we talk about what happens in the background. I mean, what people hear are this, this beautifully polished episode, but yet, you know, it's like the duck in the water. He or she is swimming so serene, but underneath those feet are just going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Valerie's already mm. seen some of the sausage being made on this episode. <laughs> well, you know what, Ted? I never realized that. TED Talks are edited. You know, it looks like this perfect from beginning to end. Mm. I got the chance to do a a six-minute TED Talk at TED headquarters in New York in front of mostly TED speakers. They were I didn't quite connect the dots, but they were doing kind of a talent search for the big stage. Uh. But they only gave us six minutes, and we had to come in the night before and, you know, get up and do our talk. And they also, if they didn't like it at the beginning, they gave you recommendations for revising it. So they're very involved in the process. Mm-hmm. One after another, people got up and they said, oh, you know, I don't think you should do this. And could you say this? And could you change that? And I'm sitting there freaking out <laughs> because I have practiced this thing and timed it hundreds and hundreds of times. The thought of suddenly changing my talk the night before, it was just, it was terrifying to me. But I mean, the, the point is, it's the same thing as you're describing, right? What goes on behind the scenes is not what people see on, out front. Yeah. Actually, I watched I watched that video. I also found it fascinating that at the end, they asked you two questions before, while they were changing speakers over. And that's something you don't normally see. Well, I've never been live at a TED or a TEDx event. Just watch them on, obviously, on YouTube or on, on video. But they asked you a couple of questions afterwards in between. I thought that was actually kind of interesting. Well, you know why? Because they did have to set up And they asked me in advance, could we do this? Um, And I said, sure. But then the person didn't shift me over enough on the stage to really give the other people time to bring this equipment up because the next person actually had this equipment that they had to get up there. So it it didn't, (laughs) it was good for me, but it didn't really help them any. (laughs) Well, there was a couple of gold nuggets in those questions. I thought they were actually well well laid out. Uh, Getting back to what you were saying about the introductions and always being great and not talking about how you <clears throat> not, uh, I hate to use the word suck, but. Well, you stumbled, you stumbled. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. That's what you leave for the inside of the keynote, right? You talk about, <laughs> you talk right. about some of those things. Anyways, uh, one of the questions that I was leading up to, and I'm not sure if it was already partially answered, but we're talking about the possibility of someone maybe appearing at either extreme, maybe outwardly confident or maybe just very, very humble, but yet inside they're experiencing, they're really experiencing the, 
the imposter syndrome. And if that's the case, how would you deal with it? And would how you would deal with it be different if you were, let's say, overconfident or maybe, you know, fearful and humble? So you're saying somebody who is overly confident, but still experiencing imposter feelings. Yes. Well, they're outwardly overly confident. So maybe they're faking it or maybe they're making it look like they're, they're coming across confident, but you know, you know, deep inside, they're just going through their, their stomach is in, is in turmoil. Right. Well, again, I guess I would say good for you because one, one of the key solutions is to kind of keep going regardless of how you feel. And I say that because a lot of people, they're kind of waiting, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, they're waiting until they feel more confident. Then I'll start my speaking business. Then I'll go for the promotion. Then I'll write my book or start my business, whatever it might be. They're kind of waiting until they feel more confident. And that's not how it works. That feelings are the last to change. So I would encourage people to project confidence even when you don't 100% feel it. And I don't mean faking it or BSing. Every day, people who have terrible stage fright, actors and singers and performers, they have to push that aside and get out there. And it is a certain amount of acting, right? You're acting like you, like you are confident. Um, and I think that that's okay. And I think it's a skill set. There was a study that found that in a leaderless group, people are more apt to follow the more confident person in the room over somebody who is as competent or maybe even more competent. How is that different from faking it till you're making it? I think this whole idea of fake it till you make it, I mean, it's gotten this kind of bad rap because I think a lot of people feel like, wait a minute, I already feel like an imposter and you want me to be even more of an imposter. At its core, fake it till you make it. And I wrote a whole chapter about this. Really what we're talking about is acting as if. Acting as if you believe the new thoughts. Because right, because the first step is to, what, what everybody wants is to stop feeling like an imposter, but what they really need to do is change their thoughts first and think like somebody who, as I would, the term I would use, is a, is a humble realist. And then to act like you believe the new thoughts. How would somebody behave if they really believed, if they, have, if they had a realistic understanding of what it meant to be competent, if they had a healthy response to failure, mistakes, setbacks, constructive feedback... And if they understood that, again, a certain amount of fear and self-doubt go with the territory, how would they act? So in the beginning, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to feel familiar. Uh, but over time, you know, the, the feelings will catch up. Valerie, you just used this term that is also in the article, a humble realist. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, it's... You know, for years, I referred to people who didn't feel like imposters as non-imposters. And I was never comfortable with the term because some people would still hear it that what I was really saying is they're an imposter and then there are these non-imposters over here. And that's not at all what, what I wanted to convey. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with some of the narratives out there in the popular discourse, not so much in academia, but in the popular discourse about imposter syndrome. But one of them is this notion that imposter syndrome is a good thing. That somebody described it, one guy on LinkedIn, as a, a badge of honor, because it means he, you must be successful if you feel like an imposter. The argument is imposter syndrome is not only a good thing, but a superpower because it means we're learning. Uh, it motivates us to work harder and it keeps us humble. My response to that is are you saying that we have to feel inadequate to be learning? Mm. I don't think so. I 
personally don't want my motivation for working hard to come from trying to outrun the imposter patrol. Uh, and in addition, the research shows that this sense of I'll prove it, I'll prove it to them, or I'll show them, or having inadequacy motivates to work harder is more common and useful for men. The research shows women are less likely to be propelled by self-doubt. Women are more likely to pull back. And third, this notion that that we have a choice, two choices, right? We can be an arrogant jerk or we can keep our imposter syndrome. Like that's the two choices. I think it's a false choice. And so I've been offering what I really see as a third, I think a more healthy choice is to become a humble realist, someone who is genuinely humble, but they have never experienced imposter feelings. And they're no more intelligent, capable, competent than the rest of us. It's just in the exact same situation where we might have imposter feelings, they're thinking different thoughts. Valerie, fully recognizing that you have full programs to teach this content and that you can't give us everything you might give in a multi-day workshop and a short interview, what can you give our listeners that they can put into action immediately to start moving towards that transition from feeling like an imposter to becoming a humble realist? Sure. Yeah. And, and listen, I'm happy to to share and be generous. Uh, Rethinking Imposter Syndrome is either a like a, a basic keynote with Q and A, or it's a 90 minute interactive session that can be it can be expanded to longer time, but you know it can be presented in a short period of time. So I could give you the same kind of in a nutshell mm -hmm. recommendations, and some of it I've already been alluding to is that for me, and this also came out of my dissertation, which was in the in the 1980s. I interviewed 15 professional women. So much of the academic research has been done with undergraduate students, mostly white undergraduate students. This was 15 professional women, over half were women of color, and found a few things. One, not surprisingly, you, you can't look at imposter syndrome in a vacuum. You have to look at societal sources of imposter feelings, number one, uh, as, as well as early messages and expectations that we got growing up. But that at its core, and I become more and more convinced of this uh, over the years, Greg and Ryan, that at its core, the common and core source of imposter feelings are, are unrealistic notions about what it means to be competent and that kind of unhealthy response to failure mistakes, constructive feedback, and this false notion that if I was really competent, I'd feel confident 24-7. So if we can shift that and reframe that, what I invite people to do is to kind of essentially kind of hit the pause button, right? When you're having that normal imposter feeling, try to become consciously aware of what is the conversation going on in your head. And then how would somebody who is humble, but has not felt like an imposter, humble realist, how would they reframe the exact same situation? And, and let me give you an, an example. There was a, a woman who uh, was in a sales role in her job. Her VP was supposed to give this big presentation to a huge potential client. The last minute, he couldn't do it. So they tossed it to her. She had to scramble, put it together, you know, her own presentation and deliver it. And everyone said she nailed it. Right. She knocked it out of the park. It was amazing. But all she could think of, because of imposter syndrome, she said all she could think of was that was just a bunch of BS that I threw together at the last minute. My response to her was the reframe here is, wow, how good am I <laughs> that mm. I can pull together information at the 11th hour that other people genuinely found useful? 
you know, when we kind of push away and deflect those compliments, what we're really saying is other people are so stupid, they don't realize I'm incompetent or inadequate. <laughs> and so it's like, imagine at the end of this, you said, oh, I, that, this was great. You did a great job. And I say, oh, really, you guys? Wow. I mean, have you ever really interviewed <laughs> interviewed an expert before if you get out of the house much or what right and how (laughs) how insulting that would be and instead i really should just say thank you i find the reframing aspect uh, extremely powerful i know we talked with uh, matt abrahams in a previous episode about on the spot impromptu speaking and that is how he explained a great way in terms of being able to uh, answer a question but in your context you talked about putting a stop on things. You talked about pausing. And I know in my case, and I've done it in the past where I pause and then I freeze. So for example, instead of dealing with the root causes or perhaps using your terminology, you know, clarifying the distorted definition of confidence, I would just seem to maybe just wallow on it, rely on coping mechanisms and not really deal with it. And I'm sure there are other people that are probably in this type of situation what do you see as the cost to our health and our welfare by procrastination like we do? Oh, oh, I think it's enormous. I think, you know, there's all kinds of behaviors, um, cope, coping and protective mechanisms associated with imposter syndrome that are costly. As you said, anything from chronically procrastinating on important, you know, high impact kinds of activities that we could and should be doing to overworking, overpreparing to this kind of flying under the radar, holding back, never putting ourselves out there. So, you know, some questions that your listeners might ask themselves once they identify how it plays out in the form of behaviors is what will happen if I never change this pattern? What price will I pay and what opportunities and experiences might I miss out on? But then I would invite them to to recognize that their pattern is serving them in some way, right? It, it's it's protecting them to kind of take a step back and say, what does my pattern help me avoid? What does it protect me from? And what does it help me get? If you procrastinate, you get time to do stuff you'd rather do. If you work ridiculously hard and you always prepare, over, over prepare, then you know, you're probably going to be successful. It's a hard pattern to break. If you fly into the radar, you don't speak up, you don't throw your hat into the ring, you avoid embarrassment or humiliation or failure. So we're getting something out of our pattern, but always at a cost. And once you can identify what your pattern's getting you and at what cost, then you can make an informed choice. Then you can say, you know what, I'm going to keep my lousy pattern because it's, it's working for me so far. It's keeping people from finding out I'm a posture and I'm getting all these other benefits. Or you can decide that the price is too high. Mm, interesting. Now, if you're changing your hat, perhaps you're a leader in an organization and you see one of your team members obviously experiencing imposter syndrome, how would you approach it? What would you say to them? You know, it's an interesting question because I don't recommend anyone kind of quote unquote diagnose someone as experience imposter feelings. You know, I created what was the first educational intervention to imposter syndrome, meaning non-therapeutic clinical mm. intervention to imposter syndrome. So as an educator, I would ask leaders to become informed, imposter syndrome informed, so that not just singling out one person to talk to and say, I think you're experiencing this. And depending on your relationship, certainly you could have that conversation, but to make it a conversation that the whole team is part of and 
saying, yeah, I learned, oh, I learned some interesting things. This is really common. If it's certainly as a leader, if you have experienced imposter feelings, it's really important to talk about those, but not in a confessional kind of way, but in a very matter of fact, offhanded, normalizing way. And I think for a lot of people, they, they look up to people, especially who are much more senior than them. And it's a big surprise and a rude awakening and a big aha to realize that they've also experienced imposter feelings or maybe still do. Oh, I thought I would just, you know, be transparent and say, well, this has happened to me and you're saying it's okay, but it's, you got to be careful the way you word it. Yeah. I wouldn't just make that assumption. And similarly, there could be somebody who's coming across very confident who could be experiencing the same thing. I wouldn't assume that the, the person who projects confidence isn't feeling that way. They just might walk out of a meeting and quickly pull somebody aside and go, how did I sound? Was it okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you don't see that publicly. That's why I think it's useful for everyone to be more informed. Gosh, this was years and years ago. I was at, speaking at some conference and a man had come because his he was an engineer, his, his boss was an engineer, and she experienced imposter syndrome. I mean, he was there to learn more about it, to be helpful to her because they had a great relationship. So I do think sharing information, I, oh, I read this article. I, th I thought it was really interesting. Here's some things I didn't know about imposter syndrome or some assumptions that I'd made and to, to have the conversation. But you could certainly say, you know, I think it's really obvious if you see somebody holding back or always putting themselves and their accomplishments down, it's less clear sometimes why someone isn't raising their hand in a meeting or for a new role. So you could just ask them, I've noticed that you you didn't apply for that job. I'd like to understand why. Mm. And they might be operating out of this assumption that they need to know 150%. Yeah. Right. Or it might be something as simple as they have something going on in their life right now with their family and they just don't feel that they can. Exactly. Or they have a more layered definition of success. And I think it can get hard, even for that individual person sometimes to separate, am I afraid to go to do this thing because I don't think I can do it, which is confidence and posture feeling shocking, or do I not want it? Oh, interesting. Asking the question so that you can rule out the possibility that it might be or it might not be something related to imposter syndrome. Right. And it's usually not one or the other, but it's usually more one than the other. In other words, if you had all the confidence in the world, would you still be reluctant? And, and similarly, success in certain situations can separate us from other people. If I have to relocate for a job or suddenly, you know, I was friends with my coworkers, now I'm their manager. Or I take this big promotion and it's going to take more of my time and my I have aging parents or I have young children or whatever it might be. Or I'm now I'm going to be the only woman. I'm going to be the only person of color, the only person with a disability, whatever it might be. You know, there's this recognition consciously or unconsciously that success has impact on other people or between myself and other people. And that could be part of the hesitation as well. Valerie, I'd like to ask you about the imposter syndrome institute. And before you answer, I'll just share with you uh, tongue in cheek. I said to Greg, before the interview, 
I said, I, I've heard of the Project Management Institute, and I know what they certify people in, <laughs> but, <laughs> but what does the Imposter Syndrome Institute have as a certification? A certified imposter? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there you go. We have, you have to pass the imposter test. Um, <laughs> actually, we, we decided we don't, quote unquote, certify people. We decided we didn't want to be in the quality control business, mm. but we do have programs where people certainly have to have some competencies to get you know credentialed. Uh, bias. So one is a program called the Imposter Syndrome Informed Coach, which mm-hmm. is for people who are executive career life coaches, but also you could be a faculty advisor working with PhD students or medical students, external uh, HR or DEI consultant, but anybody who's working one-on-one with folks. And then there's a licensing program where people who are already in the, the speaking arena and, and would like to or have been speaking on imposter syndrome, but know they you know, need a different approach or a new approach, they're I'm licensing them to be able to deliver rethinking imposter syndrome to their audiences. Great. So if our listeners would like to get more information about that or just about you and your work, what's the best way to do that, Valerie? It is so easy because it's impostersyndrome.com. I've had the domain since 1995. Amazing. Valerie, there's just so many things to take away from this episode. And folks, if you've enjoyed this episode and have taken away lots from it as we have, I encourage you to share this episode with your family, friends, fellow Toastmasters. You can find the Toastmasters podcast at toastmasterspodcast.com, toastmasters.org, Google, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Ryan? Valerie, before we close, I would just love to turn the stage over to you and invite you to take us home. What else can you leave us with here as we go off into the rest of our day? Thank you for asking that. Because I think, especially for those those in the speaking business, you're making yourself vulnerable, right? You're, you're getting up there in front of other people and you're opening yourself up to critique. For people who experience imposter feelings, constructive feedback can feel deeply wounding. We let it mean more about who we are as a person. So if somebody says your presentation was inadequate, we think I'm inadequate. 30 people fill out an evaluation and say it was excellent. One says, don't quit your day job, worst presentation I've ever seen. Right? <laughs> who do we believe but the one person? Because we think everyone else was just being nice. So I just want to tell you a quick story of an article I read a number of years ago by an executive coach. Uh, and it was at a major publication. And she wrote, to talk about this experience of ironically coming back from delivering a talk on imposter syndrome, getting an email from someone who wanted to let her know she enjoyed her talk, but that she had said, um, 100 times in her talk. Mm. So this woman said, as a coach, she always told her own clients that constructive feedback is a gift. You should welcome it. But when she got it, it was very upsetting. You know, she was hurt. She was embarrassed. She told her daughter. Her daughter was angry. How dare she? You know, how could she do that? Write you, write you that email and all that. And then she said, well, I thought about it later and I, I had a different response. I thought she was going to say gratitude, <laughs> but it wasn't. She said she felt sorry for this young woman because the young woman didn't realize that Feedback should be solicited, not just given, you know, without asking, um, and delivered kindly. Well, I don't know how it was delivered, but I looked at it like she should have sent that woman roses. That woman took time out of her day to not only tell her she had said um one hundred times, but she not just she said um, but she quantified it. Right? She <laughs> counted it, so clearly it was distracting. 
she was given this huge gift of information. And if she wants to be a speaker, you have to be open to feedback. It's like, who do you want your tennis coach? The person who says, well, I know Valerie's holding her racket wrong, but I don't want to say anything because I don't want to hurt her feelings. Or do you want somebody who's going to give you brutally honest information to help you get better? The correct answer is B. (laughs) The handle is at the other end. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And and yet I'm sure you would agree with me that there's a kind, supportive way to deliver that feedback and a mean and nasty way to do it. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Although, you know, I got to say, I've worked with people who are Hall of Fame speakers and Mm -hmm. They're brutally honest, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, because I'm paying a lot of money for that feedback, and right. for me, that was that was okay, and it's what I wanted, what I needed. But I realized, you know, for it doesn't work for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes a little honey mixed with the medicine goes a long way. Absolutely. <laughs> Just want to remind our listeners to check out Maureen Zapala's article in the August 2023 issue of the Toastmaster Magazine: "The Secret to Confidently Humble Leadership." You will gain insights from Dr. Valerie Young, as well as some other thoughts on balancing out both our confidence and our humility. Thank you. Dr. Valerie Young, it's been an absolute pleasure. Ever imagined a book written just for you? Introducing Books.ai. We're not just another bookstore, we're the future of reading. Our state-of-the-art AI adapts each book to your specific needs, creating a personalized masterpiece. Visit Pooks.ai now, that's P-O-O-K-S.ai, and use the promotion code SPOTIFY for a whopping 50% off. Pooks.ai, your personalized book awaits.